Our scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 30. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining or arguments, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding firmly the word of life, so that on that day of Christ I can take pride, because I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven character, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a, a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself will also be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold people like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to compensate for your absence in your service to me. Let's pray. Father, what a great text that we have here this morning. And I pray that you would, uh, through your spirit, speak to us uh, through Phil, to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Bob. So this is our fourth message of six in the book of Philippians, and we're doing the second half of chapter two this morning. Uh, just by way of review, because if you're like me, you forget kind of the structure of the book um, as the weeks go on. And so I'm going to do this every time, especially our catchphrases. Again, maybe this is useful to you. I hope it is. It's useful to me. Uh, and so I'm going to do a little bit of the actions for you very briefly so when you think about Philippians, either you can think about the silly actions or what God has put in there, and hopefully it's useful for you. But we are talking about the joy, kind of like the reaction, yes, of the progress in the faith, the faith moving on, the walking. 
We're also talking about the unity, and so the action for this I had the middle schoolers do is to hug each other. And you can imagine how that went when I had Sage and Sam hug. It was kind of funny. And then they bowed to each other. The unity in a hug that comes from humility. So if that's helpful for those of you who are more visual learners, good. And then Christ above all. So joy from progress of the faith. The unity that comes from humility as we consider others more important than ourselves. And Christ being exalted above all through those things. That's a good way to think about the book of Philippians. Here's an overview of the book, at least how I see it right now, uh, and the way the argument plays out. Our minds change over time, but I think before the Lord, this is how I view Paul's argument from the text. He's saying, hey, I need you to continue to stand firm. There's some discouragement going on with me in jail and maybe some people trying to distract you, sidetrack you. Stand firm. And the first way to do that is to rejoice in the progress of the faith. The second one, we're going to cover the second half of that today. And that is what? Well, it's to follow the joyful pattern of humbly serving others that is set out before you. And so last week, speaking on the first half of that in chapter 2, 1 through 12, or 1 through 11, sorry, we talked about the mind of Christ. And that's really important to have in our minds as we go through 12 through 30. Because everything here is based on not only the command at the beginning in those first five verses, but the example of the humility of Jesus Christ. And these were the things we said last week. Sacrifice, service, submission, delayed gratification. In other words, waiting till later for reward and deferred glory, giving the glory to God and not taking it for himself, though he certainly could have. All right, one more thing before we dive into the chapter today, the second half of two. A humility definition. I think this is a really important to have in our minds because how can we understand an example of humility if we don't know what humility actually is? And I'm pulling from Spurgeon here again. I'm going to shorten his quote for you. It's this. The best definition, this is Charles Spurgeon speaking, I have ever met is to think rightly of ourselves. Humility is to make a right estimate of oneself, to think of yourself if you can, as God thinks of you. So not too low, not too high, how God views us. And last week I said, hey, if you want to look at something that will produce humility in you, look at Jesus Christ. There's no better way to view yourself rightly than looking at Jesus' death and resurrection. So go to the cross and stay a while. And look at his resurrection and what it's done for you. Now today, at our Thursday preaching breakfast, one guy said to me, and he was right, you know, you haven't talked about the how. I haven't yet. The how of humility, because I think that's what today's text really is. How are we supposed to live in humility? That's the command, to consider others more important. How does that work? Practically, what am I supposed to do? You know, in my own life, I have a hard time learning things the first or second or third time. Whether it's a lesson I should learn or just physically how to do something, I struggle. My mind, I don't know, for whatever reason, doesn't process those things well the first time or the second time or the third time. This was no more evident when I was about 15 working at Arby's. And I was kind of thrown into that. I don't know if y'all have ever been just thrown into a job, but I was put up front on the service desk area, the, the counter, I guess, with the cash register. And this was before, like, the Internet and stuff, so I was there pressing buttons physically, and it was difficult. And I remember the first customer that came that I was supposed to help, 
And before this, just so you know, they'd given me a list of like hundreds of things and said, memorize this. I'm like, I don't what? <laughs> so like the second day I was put on the catch register, I'm out there, and the first customer came to me and asked for grilled chicken. Now that might seem easy to you, but for me, I'm like panicking. What grilled chicken? There are like six menu items that have grilled chicken. There's a grilled chicken club. It's a sandwich. There's like sliced grilled chicken that's on a sandwich. There's a grilled chicken deluxe, which they later discontinued. It wasn't very good. There are two salads with grilled chicken on them, sliced and a patty. And I'm like, I, I am so afraid at that point, and no one has really trained me. I haven't exper- I just punched in something with chicken on it, and when they got it, they were not happy. <laughs> All I had to do was ask, right, hey, or have had someone train me, right, to walk through that experience. Hey, buddy, all you have to do at 15 years old is ask a question. But in my mind, I'm so nervous, I don't know what I'm doing at that point. Apparently... I was so bad at that that day that I, I remember getting put on sweeping, and they told me I wasn't even sweeping well. So I don't, I don't know what my problem was there. Like my, my boss, Matt Clement was his name, he told me that I was sweeping petulantly. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe I needed help with that. Really, in a lot of ways, the Christian life is exactly like that. It's easy to say, be humble, to even look at the example of Jesus Christ, but we can't do some of the things that Jesus did. We're never going to die for the sins of the world. We're going to live as fallen creatures redeemed by grace, but we still need, I think, other examples. And so Paul, I mentioned this a little bit last week, but anticipating, right? Saying, you know what? You're going to ask me how to do this. I'm going to tell you. And so we have the example of Christ, but then we also have three more normal guys. And I think you'll see some of that here. That are good examples for us. And so that's what this passage 12 through 30 is about. To understand how do we live out that command of humility that produces unity in our lives. I think in each of these lives, you'll see a little bit of a different take on what humility really means. And each one is going to involve kind of, at least the way I'm going to present it to you, a part of our physical bodies that we use to walk out humility. So you should have your Bibles, I hope you do, or your phones with a Bible on them. We can start in verse 12. And so we're going to be working through some phrases. I'm not even going to point out the verse exactly. You can follow along. We'll start in 12. We're going to talk about the example of Paul's humility. Because I think in a roundabout way, this is really what this section is about. How Paul was an example for the Philippians of his own command to, in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. And I think it's with your mouth. The words we speak are really one area in which we can exercise humility and consider others more important than ourselves. And verse 12, the therefore connects everything that I've just been saying. He's saying, you know what, because of that, because of Christ, because of what I asked you to do, live this way. I want to note that there's an important preposition here. If you'll notice in verse 12, he says, work out not work for. Really, really important to get this right as believers because we don't work for our salvation. That's what Satan would want you to believe and your flesh want you to believe. Also, you don't work for your sanctification. You work out of a reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith in him alone. We're going to see how that plays out a little bit more, but it's very clear. I wanted to note that we are not working for our salvation. We are living out of a reality of being saved and loving Christ 
And then we can carry into the world working out what God wants us to do in the lives of other people. Now, I think, uh, continuing in verse 12, fear and trembling. Um, This is really just a synonym, I think, for humility. You know, you think about fear and trembling. Um, This isn't a fear that's like terror and running away. It's a fear of like being in the presence of a mighty God. You know, you think about Moses. and We talked about that today. There's this awe that comes from realizing who God is and what he's done for you. I don't think that's a mistake because he's just told us what Jesus has done for us, right? Paid for our sins, rose from the dead. So it's the fear and trembling that is a reverential awe. It's just the way humility works itself out. You're standing for an almighty God, you're not going to be proud. (laughs) No matter who you are, you're going to have a little bit of fear and trembling. Psalm 211 is very interesting in this regard, connecting joy and the fear and trembling that comes from God. I don't think I would have put it this way, but obviously the Lord does. He says, talks about in two, Psalm 211, serve with fear or serving with fear and rejoicing in trembling. It's interesting. There's a joy that comes from that humility in the presence of the Lord in our lives. Moving to 13 then, so we have this fear and trembling that's in us because of who God is and, and our relationship with him. And this is, this is a beautiful encouragement to me and I hope to all y'all. When you think about the commands of Scripture, they're hard to do. Famous people have said that the Scripture has not been tried and left wanting, and it's been tried and found difficult, so we don't do it. <laughs> but this is what's encouraging to me, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do. You know, the reality is in every command of Scripture, what God demands of you and me, He provides. He provides the ability to do it, whether it's the money to give, the desire to love other people that are not in our eyes lovable. Remember that consider thing, consider people worthy. Whether it's the ability to stay up late on a hard phone call, whatever God is asking you to do in the lives of other people, he'll provide it. His power is at work in you and me to do what he wants us to do. And so we can trust him, right? He's trustworthy. He doesn't ask us and leave us like a bad parent or like I do sometimes with my kids. I don't just ask, sometimes I fail. God is never that way. What he asks of you, he will provide. He says he works in us to will and to do. And then at the end of 13, I just want to note that his good pleasure, see, he's working these things out for his good pleasure. What, that is really a synonym. It's synonymous with what he said in the whole book so far. He says, you know what? I'm doing things for the glory of myself. He does it for his good pleasure. So what he does in your life is for his glory, for his pleasure. And the cool thing about that is it's always our good. We know that God is going to complete the work. That sounds similar to chapter 1, right? Verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion. A completely trustworthy God. To be able to accomplish the difficult thing he's about to say in verse 14. So he's giving you all these things leading up to 14 so that you can have confidence that what he's going to ask of you is possible because it's difficult. In verse 14, I think he gives the primary command of this section and how he has modeled out humility in Christ and loving others. It is with his mouth and with our mouths. So he says, do nothing with grumbling and complaining or grumbling and disputing. Depends on the translation. Basically, don't use your mouth to complain 
or speak ill of other people or what God is having you to do. Two different ways, these things form kind of a couplet here. The grumbling is the whispering, you know, hey, that guy, I don't really like what he's saying to me. Kind of behind the scenes. A bad boss, you whisper about them behind their back, right? You don't like that person, the way they're treating you. It's the whispering, the gossip behind their back. So he says, don't do that. Then the other one, the disputing one is clearly has this idea of a public rebuke of someone else. Not the whispering, though that causes damage as well. It's also the public rebuke. This really has the idea of your boss tells you to something, do something that the elders do, and you go to scripture because you're mad about it, and you bring an argument against them. It's like, nope, my argument is better than yours. Or you do the research and find a better way and publicly rebuke that person, right? <laughs> We've all been there. Like, I've done the research and you're wrong, my way's better. So both the whispering that causes what? Disunity that isn't based in humility and the vocal objection to those who are in authority over us that cause disunity is what's in view here. So, and everything between. That's what he's saying. Don't use your words in a prideful way. This brings to mind this exact phrasing, the Israelites in the wilderness. About 75 days into the wilderness, and I think we'll all find ourselves with them, they start to grumble and complain about what God is doing. And you know what? That ends very poorly for the leaders of that grumbling and complaining as they're swallowed up in the earth. They're judged. Boom. God judges them. One of the guys, again, at the preaching breakfast brought a passage that I wouldn't have looked at, but I think it's really good for us to understand what this looks like in a very specific instance. Job 2, 9, and 10. Job's wife is kind of the epitome of what this looks like in difficult circumstances. This is what she says. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. See there, the thing that Paul is wanting us to understand, the Holy Spirit is wanting us to understand, is the power of the words we speak to reveal a heart of faith or unbelief. And the opposite of that, I just want to point out, is the Lord Jesus, the way he used words, the way he spoke, what came out of his physical mouth despite difficulties. 1 Peter 2, 22 and 23 says this, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. So while that might be very difficult, God empowers us to do that. And that's what he wants. A heart of humility is one that is going to use our mouths, no matter whether we like the situation or not, to speak well of others and ultimately to speak well of God who put us in that situation, no matter how difficult that might seem. And this connects to the argument of Philippians in this way. The next verse talks about doing this in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation as we shine like stars. And I just got to say, if you don't realize this, which you probably do, yes, that is true. <laughs> you just go, like I did this last week, to a football game. When you sit and listen to the way in which people talk about authorities, talk about other people that aren't there in front of them, it can be really discouraging. Honestly, all you have to do is say nothing at all, and you shine. 
about the refs or about your boss or about the weather, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, like you just don't say anything and you're going to shine, let alone speak encouraging words. It's just really, I, I don't, a lot of times I think, man, I can't even take my kids to this now because of the way in which people especially speak about the refs at a football game, at a high school football game, just filled with vitriol. And so we will shine, we can turn on the light by using our mouths to speak encouraging things or not to say anything at all. Sometimes that's a better testimony, just not to say negative things about those around us. Now, it says because or when you hold fast. What is the connection to holding fast and all of this? I want to stop here because I think um, while it isn't exactly the term, like the Greek word isn't nautical or containing the sea in any way, and the English word doesn't have that, but I think it's a great illustration. This, again, comes from a guy on Wednesday, but, or on Thursday, but this is a great way to think about holding on, holding on, about a storm in the sea, and the metaphors are great there. You know, storms come to our lives. The waves threaten to sink our lives, discourage us, pull us down. I don't know if you ever watched any of these, like, docudramas or whatever. Sometimes I'm like, is this real? <laughs> Or not, but this one in particular was fascinating for a while. The deadliest catch. These guys, a lot of times out off Alaska, out fishing, and they're in the sea, and storms come. You're like, man, is this ship gonna sink? Are these guys gonna make it? They always do, for whatever reason. Um, but when those waves come, you watch sometimes guys are on the deck of the ship, and the waves are coming, and it's raining. And you're like, is that guy gonna go overboard? <laughs> Is he gonna is he gonna fall off? And sometimes they slip and fall on the deck. I watched one where that happened. So the idea of holding fast here is in the middle of a storm, you not only grab something else, but a lot of times they would tie a rope from them to the mast of the ship in old times. Now the problem with that is you really gotta trust the ship because if you're tied to a ship and the storm sinks your ship, guess where you're going? So either you're going off the ship because of the rain or you're tied to the ship, and if it goes down, you go with it. So it's the holding on and the being tethered to it. You know, modern ships actually are much better designed, but I read a little bit about Navy ships, and some of them have like a seat belt in the bunk bed, the smaller ones, so that when it's going like 15 degrees to the side, you have a seat belt to keep you there. Now, you get hurt if you're not hanging on, but you won't fall to the ground and crack your head. And I love the way in which this connects to our passage because it says, hold fast to the word of life. And I think that's just talking about Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus Christ. And I like that nautical thing because you know what? In reality, he's holding us tight. He's not going to let go. That rope tied to the mast is never going to be cut. Romans 8 says that we can't even separate ourselves from the love of God if we're in Christ Jesus. So that rope is never going anywhere. If we let go, we're going to get hurt a little bit but the ship isn't going down. If we stop holding, he's got us, but it's going to hurt. Our joy is going to be lessened like we talked about, right? We might hinder humanly our testimony in the world, but Jesus is holding us. And so hold fast, knowing that he has you as well, and hold fast to Jesus Christ. That is how we continue to speak well and to not grumble and complain. Just a note here, he says, you know what? I'm going to be proud of you if you continue to do this. And you're, you're, my work isn't going to be useless. Now, a lot of times we might think, yo, my work will be useless if this person abandons the faith. 
or if there's some great moral sin. But I think in context, this is just saying, hey, I will be proud of you if you don't complain about your situation. My work will not be in vain if you simply don't grumble and complain. That is very convicting (laughs) in my life. Grumbling and complaining is something that would cause Paul to be ashamed of his people in Philippi. Isn't that just the connection there? And I just think the scriptures here are so clear about the words we speak. I want to summarize Paul's argument and then talk a little bit theologically about words and the power of them in our lives. So in Philippians 2, 12 through 18, Paul's kind of argument is this. Hey, complaining is sinful and you want to be pure. So stop complaining or grumbling and disputing. That's what happens. You become sinful if you do that. The second result is, hey, look, if you don't complain, you're going to stand out like stars. You do this having a good attitude and speaking good words by holding fast to Jesus, and I'm not going to be ashamed of you if you speak well. If you don't complain, I will be proud of you. And then he says at the end, notice, what's my example in this? How is Paul a good example? He says, I'm in jail and I'm not complaining. You see that? He says, I am being poured out. My life is literally being poured out for you because I'm in jail and I'm struggling, but I am not grumbling and complaining. In fact, I'm speaking joyfully about my situation because I know Jesus is advancing the gospel. And so that's his argument there. Look, my example is joyful speech. Have that too. My situation is hard. Yours will be hard. Have that same kind of speaking as I have. And really, the Bible says that pride is what causes this kind of speech. I don't deserve this situation. I deserve better. I don't deserve to get sick. I don't deserve to be put in jail. I deserve a better job, a better car. Whatever it is, that's where the grumbling and disputing comes from. Listen to these verses. They're just really impactful. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. But he doesn't stop there. This is Proverbs 8.13. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. The pride is evidenced by perverted speech. Proverbs 21, 23, and 24 says this, Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. The connection to pride and scoffing speech is pretty clear there. Jesus said in Matthew 15 himself that what comes out of the mouth defiles a person. It's interesting. He placed a high value on speech. And then maybe the most impactful verse in all of Scripture is Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life. I think the connection is also when we speak highly of the Lord Jesus, people want Him. In other words, our Hearts are revealed by the words we say about our situation and about Christ and those around us. And who wants to follow a God whose people don't speak about him well, who complain about the things he does in their life? Our testimony is greatly enhanced when we speak words about Christ or don't complain. And so I guess the question is, um, when should we not speak? (laughs) Like, in other words, when is it just wise to not say anything and to be a light that way? Or when we do say something, 
what should we be saying? And I was, as I was doing this message, I was convicted because I had to repent of sin. When I was at Emmaus, there were a couple people that the way they talked just bugged me. I was immature in my faith, and they were always positive. And I was like, is this real? <laughs> is, this, is this like, are you faking it? And I had a really negative attitude toward them. One I was very close with. He's married to one of my better friends now. There's another one who he probably doesn't even know who I am. But he, he had a very difficult life. And yet whenever he struggled with his grades, he's like, you know what? God is still good. I was like, come on, man. That's just faking it, right? No, it's not. And to this day, that guy encourages me when I think about it and I think about the way my attitude should be. He would go out door to door like Walt would and he would share Christ. And I didn't join him. That's to my shame. And he always spoke positively about those experiences. Not naive positivity, but he knew who was in control. And his life was a testimony to that. I think we don't want our lives to be characterized. You know what? We're all going to fail in sin here. We're going to complain wrongly about something. But we need to not be characterized by grumbling and complaining. Speak well of Jesus. It's easy to fall into the trap of commiserating together about our situations. Let's be careful of that in our lives. Let's speak well to each other of the Lord and how he is faithful in the difficult times so that we can obey what the Spirit is telling us here through Paul. You know, one of the cool things that uh, Eric Schrag said that he thought about when he thinks of this, if we, if we, we will not do this, okay? <laughs> if we put up a bulletin board on 635, okay, and it said this, come to CBC, we don't complain. I like that. Would it be true? And would people come? I don't know. That's kind of Paul's argument in a silly nutshell, right? It's not, it's false, it's not false naivety or a, a positivity of the world. It's, what is it? It's utter dependence and faith in Christ, knowing that he is going to accomplish in our lives what he wants. And we can be absolutely sure of that. No doubt about it. Paul knew that prison was best for the sake of the gospel. And so he spoke positive words about it. He used his words to encourage others. And we can have the same confidence that God is what? Working out our salvation in our lives. So that's Paul's example, the mouth. I see Timothy's example here in 19 through 24 is really about his eyes. Where his eyes were at in his life. And it's really about what we watch for how we see the world and other people. You know, in Acts 16, Timothy actually isn't included in the people who went to jail, interestingly enough. He was clearly with them in Philippi, and so the Philippian church would have known him very well, but he wasn't one in jail. But it's pretty clear as you read through 16, 17, and 18 that he's with them, and then he leaves later. But they could identify who this was and know his character. So I think this is a reminder He's like, you know what? Be like Timothy, this guy that you know. You know me, you know Timothy. Be like him who has proven character. And he says, I have no one like him. I don't think he means like there are no other believers that are faithfully walking with Jesus. I think he's like, he's a unique example of using his eyes to look out at other people proactively and see their needs. Man, I would love that to be written on my tombstone. 
And just, just a reminder here of the scriptures. This is not Paul saying this. This is a holy God commending a man for his faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And it can be the same of you. Could God say to you and me at the end of our life, I have no one like this brother or sister who genuinely cares for the needs of other people. That's a great thing to have said about us if God were to say that. And Paul could have here, I think, just like continued to lift himself up. He could have said, you know what? I'm the example. I'm amazing. But no, I think there's even some humility here talking about Timothy saying, he's an excellent example. Model him. That's another cool thing. You know what? In our lives, we can just exalt other people, point to other people as good examples. So Paul says, look at Timothy. He watches out for your needs. He's looking for them. He genuinely cares for them. He's looking for people to help. I got to say, so many times in the church, that has been the case in my family. You have looked out for the needs of other people, and not just my family. I think that's a pattern of your life. Praise God for that. We're looking for the needs of other people here. Someone need new shoes. Do they need a new car? Do they need a car fixed? Do they need groceries? Do they need encouragement? Do they need a phone call? Look for the needs. Use your eyes physically to look at people and be aware of what God is doing so that you can aid them. And that is, that is why Paul uses Timothy. Think about his commands. Who, in, the, in the beginning of chapter 2, he says, in humility, consider others more important than yourself. And that's what Timothy is doing. Timothy is there serving Paul. He's had time and time again, proven character, time and time again, He's proved this out. I think it's important for us to notice verse 21, though. If you look there with me, he says, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. It's pretty clear that Timothy has in mind, first of all, the interests of Jesus Christ. So it's not just a human love or a human humility or a human seeking of needs. He's doing what God is calling him to do. And that's important. It's what God calls us to do for the sake of the gospel that we should be doing in other people's lives. He looked out for the interests of Christ and other people. I don't think, again, he's not like putting down other people in the church when he's saying this. He's saying, look, the pattern of the world is to look out for yourself. Timothy's life, his pattern of humility that brings unity is to what? Look out for the interests of other people, even at cost to his own life, even at hard things that he would have to endure. And so the question for us then, I think, is what are we watching for with our eyes? And I think the important thing is, again, some convicting things for me here, but we have to have our eyes up out of our phones to do that. You, know, you can't really see what your neighbor needs if you're on your porch on your phone. <laughs> That's convicting for me. My wife is excellent at that. If you're in the grocery store and you're waiting in line and you're on your phone, you can't really see what other people actually need. Or you might miss what God is doing for you or through you or for other people. We also have to have our eyes up off of our problems. A little more metaphorically there, but if we're focused on only what is wrong with our life, we can't see what other people need. We have to have our eyes physically on other people in the church. Notice them. We have to have our eyes focused on Jesus Christ in order to be able to really have the motivation in the right place. And that's the mindset of Christ, who in his life, he ministered to other people. 
He had his eyes up looking for need. And ultimately, the cross is the greatest demonstration of looking at other people's needs. The third example of humility, then, is of our hands and whom we work for. That might be a weird way of saying that. I'll explain why. Whom we work for. And maybe I should have said feet here. I'll tell you why. You know, when you think about Epaphroditus, you've got like Jesus Christ, Paul the Apostle, Timothy like, humanly speaking, maybe right below him, and Epaphroditus? Well, how do you beat or compare with those things? I would say you walk a lot. I mean like Forrest Gump type walking here. Let's not miss this man who did what a movie can only capture a fake movie at that here's a man who left his life in philippi to come to rome to help paul now that is a trip that right now i googled it last night would take you about 21 hours including flights okay so 21 hours i don't know if that was traffic or what i just looked at it once it's about a day with modern transportation and modern conveniences but in Timothy in Paul's day and Epaphroditus' day, it's either 800 miles if you take the sea route. Now, the sea route is a problem. Talking about water and nautical stuff earlier, there's an 80-mile part of that journey that is absolutely treacherous. And a lot of people died going that way. And it's not certain that when you get there, you're actually going to get a boat, and it's costly. So most people would take a 1,300-mile trip using Roman roads around to get from Philippi to Rome. Let's put that in perspective here. That is me or you walking from Dallas to the Canadian border. Okay? That is me walking from Denver to Atlanta. Now, I think we can begin to see the sacrifice, the way in which Paphroditus really did consider Paul more important than himself. Not only did he leave whatever was going on in his own life, He's walking 1,300 miles to see Paul. That is humility. And then in that day, you'd get a backpack, put some supplies in it, get some water, and trust that God would keep you safe. You would brave the weather, bandits, wild animals, and sickness. And you see what happened to Epaphroditus. I don't know exactly when this was, but you can imagine that long of a trip might make you sick. It was probably at least six weeks. If the weather was bad, if you got sick, it was six months walking. Man. If you had a horse, expensive. And if the horse didn't die, it was four to five weeks. You're cutting two weeks off, Max. This was a sacrifice for him to come and minister to Paul in Rome. And that's, I think, the example. He used his life, his feet, his hands to serve Paul in humility. He considered Paul more important than himself. And he got sick at the end. He got sick. It's interesting. I think that puts things in a little bit different perspective for us. See, out of obedience to the Lord, Epaphroditus says, I'm going to walk 1,300 miles and trust you to do what you're going to do. But then he needs ministering too. He shows up ready to help Paul, but actually in the end, he ends up being the one who needs ministry. You know, God's ways are different than ours, right? And here's a man, too, who 
when he was sick was much different than we are. I talked about this at the beginning, but it's like, you know, when we're sick or when I'm sick, my wife says, I am like asking other people, oh, come help me. I need you. Call me. We get mad when people see, don't see us when we're sick. We want them to serve us. Epaphroditus is more concerned that they heard he was sick and are worried than he is about almost dying. That is a man who is worthy of imitation, who would walk 1,300 miles and not care and be brave. And how did he get to that point where he's bravely walking all that way, caring more about other people than his own life? I think it has a little bit to do with the relationship between fear and anxiety and humility and pride. We talked about this in chapter 1 at the end there, 27 and following, like a fear that's based in pride, what's going to happen to me, will produce nothing that God wants in us. But a real trust in Christ will produce all the bravery that we could ever need because we know he's in control. And this phrase stuck with me and has stuck with me for a long time. I don't even remember where I read it, but it's how I live will be far more important to God than what I accomplish. How you and I live will be far more important to God and is far more important to God than what we get out of that, what we accomplish in our lives. Think about Epaphroditus. And I think Paul's even kind of hinting in that. He's saying, honor him because you're tempted to say you failed because you got sick. (laughs) But he didn't. The same thing is true in our lives. How we live will be far more important to God than what I accomplish. There's a guy named William Borden. He lived a while ago, and I'm going to read you an excerpt about his life. Just think about success and failure in God's eyes and the humility that it would take for someone like this and Epaphroditus and Timothy. This is an excerpt from Christianity Today on him. It says, Tucked away in the northwest corner of an American cemetery in Cairo, lies the neglected grave of William Borden, one of the most celebrated missionaries of the 20th century student volunteer movement, heir to a family fortune that Yale graduate instead devoted his life to Christ, pledged in service to the Muslims of China. But at age 25, Borden died in Egypt, having contracted spinal meningitis while studying Arabic in preparation. There's an inscription engraved at the bottom of his tombstone, it says, apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. You know, in God's eyes, that was a life worthy. That was a humble life, though it ended short with no outward fruit. He went to study and he got some Arabic learned and he died. But I think he is like what Paul is saying here. God is more concerned about how we live life in humility, concerned about others than what we accomplish. Because we just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And humility involves a lot of admission of lack of knowledge of the future. Just lack of knowledge, period. We just don't know what we're going to do and what it's going to accomplish. That's why it's so important that we trust Christ and live out of that faith in what we do. How many people have trusted Christ only to be martyred soon afterward? How many of our lives are not the way we hope they turned out. But in faith, God can commend us if we're faithful to what he asks us to do. Sickness and disease, those are no real threats to God's purpose on the earth in and through us. 
What he wants of us from this passage is to humbly consider others more important than ourselves, and he will take care of the results. Maybe you'll get sick, like Epaphroditus. Maybe your time at college will be completely ruined by sickness, and yet you did it in honoring to the Lord, and that's what he cares about. In humility, considering others more important than yourself. And so the question I think for us is, whom are we working for in what we do? For Christ and his glory or for ourselves? Things don't always turn out. In fact, rarely do they turn out exactly like we plan. (laughs) And yet God is behind the scenes working in his providential way. We have to be working for the right person to make our lives count for eternity. I love this. I'm going to leave you with an illustration here that kind of perfectly exemplifies the humility and considering others more important ourselves in light of the gospel. From The Insanity of God, one of my favorite books, about a Chinese pastor. When he, asked, when, when he was asked, interviewed by this guy who wrote the book, why are the authorities so concerned about poor Christians and their home churches? And this is what he said, and I think it is relevant to in humility living out the gospel in our culture. It says, The security police regularly harass a believer who owns the property where a house church meets. And the police say, You've got to stop these meetings. If you do not stop these meetings, we will confiscate your house and we will throw you out into the streets. And so the property owner will probably respond, Do you want my house? You want my farm? Well, if you do, then you need to talk to Jesus because I gave him this property. The security police will not know what to make of that answer. So they will say, we don't have any way to get to Jesus, but we certainly can get to you. When we take your property, you and your family will have nowhere to live. And the house church believers will declare, then we will be free to trust God for shelter as well as our daily bread. If if you keep this up, we will beat you, the persecutors will tell them. Then we will be free to trust Jesus for healing, the believers will respond. And then we will put you in prison, the police threaten. By now... The believer's response is almost predictable. Then we will be free to preach the good news of Jesus to the captives to set them free. And we will be free to plant churches in prison. If you try to do that, we'll kill you, the frustrated authorities now vow. And with utter consistency, the house church believers will reply, then we will be free to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. When we, in humility, consider others more important than ourselves, that's our attitude. Our lives... Our speech, our eyes, they're all focused on loving others for the sake of the gospel. How you live will be far more important to God in the end than what you accomplish in this life. That's true for all of us. May we live in humility, considering others more important than ourselves. Let me pray for us as we go. Lord, this is a challenging message from my own heart that true humility, true greatness is really considering other people as more important than ourselves, just like Christ did. Lord, give us the power that you've promised to us by your Spirit to live in that way. Whether, you know, we, some of us might, but Lord, right now we're going to not go to prison, but Lord, help us to give everything to you with our hands freely uh, for the sake of Christ and because we love other people, because you loved us. We just ask that you would work in us by the power of your spirit, the ability to be humble. Uh, Because without you, it's not going to happen. Just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.